We come now to the preaching of God's Word, and I invite you to take out your Bibles and turn to the book of 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4. I'll be reading and preaching this morning on verses 1 through 6. That's 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, as we continue on in our study through this epistle. I invite you to read along silently as I read aloud this morning. 1 Peter chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Here Peter writes, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel is preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way that people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for your grace and mercy today and for this opportunity to gather together as your people to hear your word preached. And we would ask now for the work and the ministry of the Holy Spirit, that he would be our guide and teacher today, that he would grant us an understanding of this passage of Scripture in such a way that our thinking and our conduct would be transformed for the glory of God and that we would desire above all things to bring honor to you, to fulfill your will in our own lives for your glory and for our good. So bless us now, Sovereign Spirit, do that work which only you can do. For we ask these things this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. This morning, brethren, we return to our series in the book of First Peter. And as we begin chapter 4 here, we see that Peter's focus once again returns to the example of Jesus Christ. Once again, we find ourselves in that very same place, considering the example of Christ. In fact, throughout this entire letter, Peter has repeatedly pointed us to Jesus Christ as the one who gives us a joy that is beyond expression, a joy that is filled with glory, 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 8, and as the one who gives the grace to us to bear up gracefully under suffering ourselves. For by his example, we see how we ourselves should suffer whenever we are called upon to do so. And of course, suffering is a part of what you and I are called to do. In fact, Peter made that clear back in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 21. And by the grace that we receive from Jesus Christ, we are to follow in his steps 
and yet to follow obediently in his steps, we must have the same mindset, the same mindset that Christ himself possessed in his submission to God. And what was our Savior's mindset throughout the long course of his sufferings? Well, to put it very simply, although I, I do want to draw this out in greater detail as we go along this morning, to put it very simply, Christ's spiritual mindset, our Savior's mindset was to live in such a way that his life was not directed by human desires or passions, but by and for the will of his Father. To live for the will of God. For as Christ but that he tasted the physical pains and agonies of soul that were associated with the flesh. submitted to the will of his heavenly father. In fact, Peter spoke of this mindset on Christ's part in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 22, which we have already considered, where he stated that Christ committed no sin, neither was there deceit found in his mouth, and Christ was revived when he saw entrusting himself to him who judges justly. For as Christ suffered, his mind was not arrested. As Christ suffered, his mind was not in a panic. His mind was not unruly or distressed with untrusting or distrusting thoughts about how difficult things were or about how unjust he was being treated, but rather Christ's mind was set, as Peter states, his mind was armed, notice that, armed with what he knew about his father's goodness, with what he knew about his father's justice, which Christ knew that he could rely upon and trust in. And thus Christ did not pause in his walk of obedience before his father, he did not draw back out of fear or out of misapprehension, nor did he hesitate to fully submit to the Father, but rather Peter clearly states here in our text that Christ continued entrusting himself to God for his trust in the Father, which had been so evident before the crucifixion, did not cease and did not wane during the crucifixion, but rather Christ's trust in the Father, Christ's willingness to set his mind on the goodness and justice of the Father continued strong and unfailing. Because Christ knew that the Father was just as sovereign, just as in control over his circumstances and suffering as he was in times when Christ experienced relative calm. God was just as much a father to him when he suffered as when he was in a place of safety. And of course, while Peter does not comment on this point here, I, I think it's helpful just to mention in passing that you and I are to be kept at peace by this same sense of calm.
justice of our Father that we are suffering. He knows that. In fact, he appointed that suffering for us, for you and for me, whatever that suffering is. It was given to us by the hand of God, and he is not without compassion for us. The same one who gave it to us is the same one who brings us through it. The same one who called us to it is the same one who has compassion for us throughout the entire ordeal. And his compassion for us is far greater than we fully understand, far greater than we fully comprehend. So like Christ, let us set our minds, let us arm our minds with this same way of thinking, as Peter says here in verse 1 of chapter 4, for who we direct our thoughts to in the midst of our suffering is vitally important. Did you hear that? Who we direct our thoughts to in the midst of suffering is vitally important. And like Jesus Christ, we should be directing our thoughts to our God who judges us justly. Of course, we have the example of our Lord Jesus Christ, who in the midst of his suffering, thought of his father, cried out to his father, meditated even in his grief upon his father and his father's promises and his father's goodness. And yet, brethren, when it comes to arming ourselves fully, to setting our minds in this same way of thinking, we must follow Christ still further. Still further. That's the message today. Still further than that. Yes, entrust yourself to God's care. That's what we should be doing. But go by his grace a little further. For suffering in the flesh is the starting place. But we notice that Christ not only continued to trust himself to God, but he refused to do anything that was against his father's will. That's the going further part. He refused to do anything that was against his father's will. In fact, there was in Jesus Christ not only a, a mindset of resignation, a sweet submission to the will of God, but there was also in Jesus Christ a resolve to do his father's will, even though in fulfilling the work of that will, he was required to suffer. And no doubt, beloved, there will be times in our own service to God when we too will be called to suffer and that it will be not enough to say that we are resigned to whatever God has for us, but we will have to express our resolve as well. Our resolve to be active and to refuse to live according to those passions and desires which are opposed to our Father's will. That's the gist of this text, by the way, that we're talking about this morning. For us to say that we're resigned is one thing, but that we're also unwilling to resist those forces and those temptations that actually oppose our obedience to God does not speak well of us if we don't do both. 
No, brethren, to obey God, to embrace the sufferings that come with obedience to God, we must also be willing to go further. We must also be willing, Peter says, to turn from sin. To turn from sin. We must be willing to cease from a lifestyle that once characterized us. Our lives were once characterized by sin. In fact, this is the theme. This is the direction that Peter now takes us in in our text here in 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 1. For in taking us further in our thoughts about what it means to suffer righteously, Peter says, For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Notice that statement. Whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Who is the whoever referred to here in verse 4? Who is that? Or in this verse, I should say, who is the one who has ceased from sin? Well, clearly the word whoever in this verse cannot refer to Christ, although he is mentioned, as you know, back in the first part of this verse, because whoever being referred to here has actually ceased from sin, and given that Christ was always sinless, given that Christ had no sins whatsoever to cease from, Peter cannot be referring to Christ here now again in this latter part of this verse. Rather, the one who has suffered in the flesh and who has ceased from sin must be referring in the context of Peter's argument here to that Christian who has experienced suffering for Christ. And in doing so, this individual has demonstrated his or her desire not to live under the power and the demands of sin or to be ruled or controlled by the fleshly passions promoted by it. For while no Christian can live a life truly sinless, in fact, Peter's not suggesting here that a Christian can live a sinless life. Nevertheless, a Christian's willingness to suffer for Christ involves his desire, her desire, not to sin as well, which is a clear indicator that they desire to follow Jesus Christ. For having identified with Christ and his sufferings through faith in what Christ himself accomplished on the cross, a true Christian no longer desires a life of sin. That's what Peter's saying here. A true Christian who is truly entrusting him or herself to God's care in the midst of suffering is also a Christian who no longer desires to live as they once lived no longer desires to live in sin. He no longer wants to waste his life. She no longer wants to waste her life pursuing those things that go against the Father's will. But rather, as Peter expresses here in verse 2, a Christian is willing to suffer. A Christian who is eager to cease from sinning desires to live as Christ lives. He or she desires, as Peter states here, to live for the rest of their time here as a believer who is no longer driven or consumed or motivated by human passions, but who is directed by God's will. For what was wasted by us in pursuing sinful desires in the past, Peter says, is to be left behind what we wasted our time and effort on in the past is to be set aside 
in our new pursuit of Jesus Christ. That's the idea here. In fact, Peter's reason here in verse 3, and I, I find his arguments here fascinating, that we owe our past lives absolutely nothing when it comes to our present. You owe your past life nothing when it comes to your present conduct as a Christian who is now willing to suffer for the sake of Christ. For once we thought we were completely obligated to do whatever the flesh demanded. Do you remember those days, Christian? You thought you were obligated to do whatever your flesh insisted that you needed to do. You once believed that you would be empty if the passions of the flesh were not satisfied. In fact, brethren, you know this. You and I live in a culture, a lost culture around us that is constantly bombarding us with the false message that our priority, our key to happiness, our key to true contentment is to constantly cater to the flesh, to do whatever the flesh demands, to do whatever our desires say we're obligated to do, to, to feed those desires rather than to resist those desires. But Peter is saying, now that we've been saved, now that we have the Spirit, now that we've ceased from sin, now that we've resolved by the grace of God not to live in those sinful patterns anymore, we know better. We know better. We have been instructed by the Holy Spirit. We are now willing to turn aside from those things that the ungodly and namely the Gentiles who are without God are willing to do. In fact, Peter summarizes this point well here in verse 3 of 1 Peter chapter 4 where he writes, For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. The time in the past satisfied whatever those demands were. They were unrealistic and sinful demands anyway, but the past has satisfied that. You have no obligation to go back and do anything more at all because Christ has come into our lives and Christ has separated our past from our present. Christ has made the time that we entirely wasted back in the past of no consequence any longer. I want you to hear the impact of what Peter is saying here. You have no obligation to go back. You have no ties. You have no reason to go back. There's nothing to pull you back anymore. There's no promises there that the flesh is making that it can fulfill. It's, it's all a... Uh, an attempt to get you to go back to a lifestyle that you've already been delivered from. For that life no longer has a hold on us. That life is past. It's gone. We no longer owe it any kind of allegiance. Therefore, living with a view to the past, Living bound to the sinful memories and the sinful passions of the past is a utter waste of time. Let me repeat that and let me expound on it a little bit. Let me just, I want to I say this statement again because it's so important. Living with a view to the past, 
living bound to the sinful memories and the sinful passions of our lives before Christ is an utter waste of time. And let's be honest, we've wasted a lot of time in the past, haven't we? In fact, we can be tempted to waste time now in thinking about what's happened in the past because we have sinful memories. We have sinful passions that we were concerned about in the past that rise up from time to time. But the truth of the matter is, those things belong in the past. They have no place for us. The time that we spent in the past doing what the lost wanted us to do was sufficient to show one thing, how lost we were, how desperately we needed Jesus Christ for what we previously took pleasure in, what Peter lists here as those activities that the Gentiles took pleasure in should no longer appeal to us in the same way. Of course, Peter's very specific here about those kinds of activities that are in the past. Notice he mentions sensuality and passions and drunkenness and orgies and drinking parties and lawless idolatry. You, you get the sense he could have gone on and on and on, right? But he didn't. We get the idea. Our lives should not be characterized in any sense by these things. For now, suffering for Jesus Christ is more preferable than participating in sin. We'd much rather be abused for Christ's sake than to have the praise of sinners, to have the guilt and the consequence and the regret of sin. And yet, brethren, because lost men and women do not value Christ as we value him, and because they see our desire to suffer rather than to sin as being offensive instead, you and I are, are often the ones who are held in contempt by others. We're often subject to ridicule and to scorn throughout society. In fact, notice that Peter addresses this fact here in verse 4. For Peter writes here in verse 4, with respect to this, with respect to the fact that we would rather suffer for Christ than to participate in that which dishonors Jesus Christ. Lost men are surprised when we do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign us. No doubt all of us who confess the name of Christ have at one time or another been maligned. Because of our refusal to join along with others or in some activity that we deem as dishonoring to Christ. And no doubt there have been occasions when others have expressed surprise or even shock at our narrow minded and what they would consider to be our bigoted beliefs with respect to Jesus Christ and how we live in the world. And yet, Peter tells us here to anticipate these responses. Anticipate the fact you're going to be maligned. Anticipate the fact that people are going to scorn you. In fact, Peter simply assumes that this will happen, for many times unbelievers will try to disarm us. Notice the play on words, in a sense. We are to arm ourselves by having the same mind as Christ. But unbelievers, our opponents, our critics, want to disarm us 
by attempting to portray us in unjust ways, or if possible, by trying to shame us for taking unpopular positions or for having what they see as prude or outdated moral views. But again, Peter would not have us to be surprised by this. Don't be surprised by it. If we are maligned, it's because they first maligned Christ. If they express surprise that Christ preferred that which was good and just rather than that which was immoral and evil, they will express surprise that we desire what Christ desired. And if they become angry because we will not allow ourselves to be swept away by what Peter calls here in verse 4 a flood of debauchery, and we should not be surprised either, for it is common for those who are drowning in sin, like the unsaved are, to take others or to try to take others under the water with them. Right? And when we refuse to participate in sin, many people will strike out against us in a way that reveals the true hatred that they have for God and for those who fearlessly pursue his will. And so the Apostle Peter would have us to be very wise here. Let's be wise to know that the suffering that we're called to endure may well come from those who first express surprise at our different convictions, but who after observing our willingness to stand firm against sin may actually attempt to malign us may actually attempt to silence us, to intimidate us, to oppose us entirely. And yet, Peter would have us to know that God is sovereign over all these things, even over those who malign us. For God not only rises up in defense of his people, but he also assumes the role of judge over those who actively oppose us. For in speaking of God's power as the presiding judge over our opponents here in, in verse 5 of First Peter 4, Peter writes, but they, those who actively malign the suffering people of God, will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For all that unfolds, even the persecution that falls upon us, even the opposition that we face as God's people takes place under the all-knowing, watchful eye of the just judge, who is not unmoved by the cries and prayers of his people, but he will in time vindicate us. You will be vindicated. I will be vindicated because of Jesus Christ. And he will hold personally accountable those who seek to harm his people, including us. Surely, friends, as much as it is a fearful thing to face this righteous judge, how much more fearful and dreadful is the prospect of standing before God as a guilty persecutor and opposer of his suffering people. In fact, if you are an opposer and a persecutor of God's people, 
Be careful. Be aware of what you're doing. Be careful of what you do. Be very mindful. Be mindful that the lowly person in Christ who you now persecute so maliciously is highly favored in the eyes of God. Is highly favored in the eyes of the judge. And he will hold all personally accountable for what they say and do against them. And to you who are now being persecuted, to you who are now acquainted with suffering for Christ's sake, may you take heart. Take heart. For though your accusers may appear to have the upper hand now, and there are times when it seems like our accusers do have the upper hand, they seem to have the advantage. There are those times there is one whose ruling hand will bring an end to our ordeal very soon. For while the sufferings that you are enduring may not be known to all now, given that much of what you suffer sometimes as a Christian is in secret or in silence, the just judge, the God and Father of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, sees and knows all things, and he will not allow the cruelty of others to go unnoticed or unaccounted for. So brethren, Christian who is acquainted with suffering, Christian who is now undergoing suffering, rest assured you who are suffering for Christ's sake, you who are being persecuted because you hold Christ's name as being more precious than your own, you will be blessed. Blessed. Jesus declared in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Furthermore, let us not surrender or forsake our hope also that many who now rail against us, many who now rail against the truth and who are now speaking evil of Christ and of his people may still be by the grace and mercy of God saved. Those individuals who seem to hate you so may indeed be called by grace to Christ soon. It is not merely for anxious sinners that the gospel is to be preached, but the gospel is also to be preached to the obstinate, the obnoxious, the outright rebellious, even the active opposer of the glorious gospel. Even that person who so sorely mistreats you. In fact, we have a compelling example of this in the life of the Apostle Paul of what the gospel of God can do in the life of one who was hell-bent on destroying Christians and the church of God. For you'll remember the man Saul, right? Actively persecuting those who confess Christ, working diligently to destroy all those who assembled together for worship of Christ, and yet on the Damascus road, through the power of Christ's own words in the gospel, the apostle Paul, Saul, was saved. And he who once spoke out against Christ became an ambassador of Christ. Imagine that. He who once persecuted the church and tried to destroy it became an apostle of the church. 
he who spent the remainder of his life trying to build it and promote it was one who once tried to destroy it. For the gospel is the power of God and the salvation. The gospel transforms those who once were lost and gives them spiritual life in Jesus Christ, unites them with Christ in his kingdom. Furthermore, the gospel transforms those who were once militant in their opposition to the truth into those who are eager to follow Jesus Christ. That's the beauty and the power of the gospel. That was true in many of our lives. In fact, this explains why Peter, writing here in 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 6, writes, For this is why the gospel is preached to those who are dead. This is why the gospel is preached to those who are dead. And dead here does not refer to the dead who are mentioned much earlier. In fact, I mentioned this last week when I did an exposition of the previous passages. Some interpreters um, have indicated their belief uh, that there's a connection here between uh, the spirits in prison mentioned in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 19 and this text itself supporting the novel idea that some persons are actually given a second chance following their physical deaths to believe in the gospel. And yet the Apostle Peter's focus here is not upon spirits in prison. That's not the dead being referred to here, nor is Peter suggesting that some will be given another opportunity after this life to believe in Jesus Christ. In fact, I explained to you last Sunday that the spirits in prison mentioned back in chapter 3 and verse 19 were fallen demonic beings that the proclamation that was made to them was a proclamation of Christ's victory. And so there's no warrant, there's no reason here to view Peter's reference to those who are dead here in verse 6 as referring to those who are imprisoned back in 1 Peter 3.19. Rather, in speaking here in verse 6 of our text about those who are dead, Peter is referring here to lost men and women who are now dead in their trespasses and sins. Those who are described back in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1. For the primary reason why lost men and women speak out so vehemently against Christ, why they labor to persecute and malign those who speak for Christ, is because they are spiritually dead. That's why. That's why they act the way they do. Their fallen minds are still darkened by sin and unbelief. Their eyes are still not capable of seeing the spiritual beauties of Jesus Christ. Their ears are not yet open to the sweet, glorious sound of Christ's voice as it is proclaimed in the gospel. And no doubt multitudes are still in this condition today. Multitudes. In fact, this is the case with the majority of men and women today. Let's not forget that we are told by the Apostle Paul that the God of this world has blinded their minds to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel. 
to keep them from seeing the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And this describes so many today. For unless the Holy Spirit of God removes the veil from the mind, unless he enables a person to see the light of the gospel and the glory of Christ, a person will remain in darkness. And it's our prayer that this state of blindness will soon end. In fact, if you're not a believer today, our prayer for you this morning is that the darkness of mind that you have been experiencing and the confusion that you have had because of your lack of spiritual hearing will soon be lifted. Soon be lifted and that you will know with spiritual clarity and the strong conviction of faith that the Spirit produces life. And the Spirit produces life in believers. In fact, it is for this reason Peter argues here in 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 6 that we preach boldly the gospel of Christ. For no other message, no other means can enlighten the mind. No other message can open blind eyes. No other message can unstop the ears of those who now hate Christ. No other message can transform them into persons who are glad to hear Christ and do as he commands. Boy, if you think about that, that's a powerful message, isn't it? A powerful message indeed. A life-changing message. For we know that those who are dead in the sense that Peter speaks of here in verse 6, have nothing to commend them in the eyes of God. In fact, Peter states that they have been judged in the flesh as people are. They have been judged in the flesh as people are, meaning, basically, that they have already received a sense of God's condemnation for their unbelief. They've already been judged. Their lives have already seen adverse effects because of sin. But our hope, in fact, the reason that we continue laboring so diligently and prayerfully to preach the gospel is our steadfast confidence that if individuals do believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, they will, as Peter states here at the end of verse 6, live in the Spirit the way God does. Or we could actually translate this last phrase, live in the spirit according to God's ways, which I think makes more sense. Live in the spirit according to God's ways. For when a person is regenerated by the spirit, this is the whole point that Peter's been making here. This is like a summary of it all. There will be a change in the way we live. There must be a change in the way we live. In fact, there has to be a change in the way we live. It's the very nature of the change itself. For we will no longer live according to our own way. We will no longer desire and to endeavor to fulfill the flesh. But rather we will desire to live in conformity to what God reveals. And there are no exceptions to this vital spiritual principle. No exceptions. Therefore, while we who are believers in Jesus Christ are often required to suffer, 
because we've chosen by God's grace to cease from a life of sin, we do so willingly and gladly. We, we invite the suffering. We invite the hardship. We invite the difficulty, knowing that God is actively at work within us and that what God is doing within us enables us to live for God's will. I trust that that's what you want in your life. I know it is in mine to live for the will of God, not for myself, not for others, not to live up to others' expectations, not to live up to what my flesh demands, not to live up to what society says, but to live according to God's will. Whatever that is, wherever it takes me, however far I have to go, whatever I have to sacrifice. May this be the sincere desire of all of us living here in the sight of God this morning. May God bless the word that we've heard today. May he bless it for his own glory, for the growth of his church, and for the spiritual good of his people. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for your word today and for your mercy and grace. We thank you for what Peter's been saying in this text this morning about the change of life that will certainly take place as your spirit regenerates us and we become aware of our new life in Jesus Christ. For because of Christ, we have resolved to cease from sin. We have pushed aside the things of old. We have set out on a new course. We realize we have no obligation, no allegiance to the past. We no longer have to answer to the demands or the requests of the flesh. But we're called to move forward. And in moving forward, there's suffering. In moving forward, there's difficulty and misunderstanding and being maligned and abused. But we take that in stride. We take that with our minds set upon your will in the strength of your spirit to do what you've called us to do. And we ask for the grace to do that today. Father, if there's anyone here today outside of the Lord Jesus Christ, may they realize that they are indeed spiritually blind and desperately in need of the light of the gospel. And we would ask that you would have mercy upon them today and grant them faith and repentance to the saving of their souls, that they might know what it is to live for Jesus Christ that they might know what it is to suffer for Jesus Christ, because living for Jesus Christ is not an easy life. Like Peter's been making that very clear to us, Father, throughout this entire epistle. It's not a cakewalk. It's not an easy life. But it is a worthy life by your grace. It is a noble life. It is a God-honoring life. It's a life that we as your people desire to live for you. So bless us. Bless your word today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.